watchers in the fourth dimension. Something terrible has happened, I know it. It was in my start. That is what I thought, but of course I'm only a savage. Come on, savage. If you only pity so good, why are they going back to oil? You tell me that. Hello and welcome back to Watchers in the Fourth Dimension. I'm Anthony. I'm Julie. And I'm Riley. And the generator, but he were always so careful. This episode, we're off to a lighthouse where a shape-shifting alien awaits the grumpiest Tom Baker that we've seen to date in the horror of Fang Rock. But before we get into that, we're going to take a quick look at the mail, which is in the hands of Riley. Thank you. We have a lot of mail regarding the Robots of Death episode. Kieran James Evans says, one of the best Baker stories. Yes, there isn't much original in it, but it's put together so well. The only thing I'll criticize it for is that it's fairly obvious in places who the villain is, but it's still getting nine and a half hands I don't want thrown at me out of 10. (laughs) Amazing. Dave Jones says, Boucher is always a sure thing for me. Tony Monticello says, if I could cosplay any Doctor Who character where budget and skill wasn't an issue, it would be as a Vok robot. A definite favorite, 10 chubs out of 10. I'm liking these scores so far. I am too. Mark Dunstan says, this is a totally good story and stands up to many repeats. It's stylish with a multi-ethnic cast. Great story. I know most people figured out the bad guy, but what the heck? It deserved its score. I will give it 10 out of 10 bicycle reflectors from the Rayleigh Chopper 1970s bike. Okay, that's a bit of a deep cut there. All right. (laughs) Tom Baker's a god. The producers should have made D84 a companion along with the wonderful Leela. I think that could work. Maybe that could have worked. I don't know. I need to think about that further. Nick Rutherford says, this totally deserves your almost perfect 10. Talking of Glamrock, Dask's robot makeup reminds me of David Bowie's screaming Lord Byron look from his Blue Jean video a few years later. I'd like to think that David Bowie enjoyed watching the series. Dave and the Doctor were two of the biggest influences on me growing up. And arguably, I can't think of two better influences for someone growing up than those two. Martin Stone Hennessy says, I was hanging with a friend who had only seen the new series on Saturday, and I let him know all the different streaming options for Classic Who. By way of demonstration, I turn on the Plex stream. We might need to check into that. I don't know what that is. And what should be starting, but Robots of Death. Spoilers, we got sucked in and watched the whole thing. Excellent intro to Classic Who. Yes, you are a gateway dealer to Classic Who. Excellent. Alan Seiler says, A truly outstanding serial, Doctor Who at its finest. As with Face of Evil, the world building here is so, so good and done so effortlessly. It's all done conversationally in ways that lets the audience know who these characters are, what their goals and motivations are, the society they're a part of, even hints at the class structure of that society, etc., without ever falling into the trap of having characters say things to each other just for the sake of info dumping for the audience's benefit. I think Boucher rarely gets included in discussions about Doctor Who's best writers because he didn't write a large number of stories like Holmes, Hulk, or Dix did, but I definitely consider him to be top tier along with those writers and a few others. Everything about this story is executed at the highest level. I give this one 10 out of 10 aerodynamically impossible bumblebees. (laughs) Nice. (laughs) Two additional points. I've always seen Dask as very much in the Harrison Chase mold, someone who delusionally considers themselves to be of another species to the point of sighting against humanity. Two peas in a robot pod. Also, to Riley's point about model work, I direct your attention to Space 1999. People seem to want to be doing that a lot. (laughs) Yeah, guys, we're not going to do it. We're not doing the Space 1999 cast. We're not doing it. It's not happening. Smash cut to Welcome to Watchers in Space 1999. (laughs) It aired in 1975 to 77, so it precedes this story by two years and features truly exceptional model work for a mid-70s television production. Dan Boris says, I don't always agree with the podcast crew. I actually like Plane of Evil. Okay, everyone has their opinion. But we are in sync on this one. Definitely one of my yeah, yay! Definitely one of my favorite episodes. Great story, interesting characters, and world building, and some really creative design, especially the robot design. I also like that even though it uses one of the classic Doctor Who tropes, the Doctor shows up when something bad happens and gets blamed. It makes it very believable. It makes total sense that they would be blamed in that situation, but not everyone is on board with that, and they don't carry the blame too far once it starts to be clear it wasn't them. It also leads to a great quote at the end of episode two, where Toos says, it's strange how you're always around, and the doctor replies, it's a gift. That was very good. 
Ian Strange says, One of my favorite stories, watching it for the first time in color, the repeat showing on New Year's Eve 1977, was a spellbinding experience. That is an excellent choice for a New Year's Eve episode, I would think. Don't know why, I guess just its quality. R.L. Gray says, Very entertaining episode as always, watchers. This story is a favorite in our household. My partner and I frequently say, I heard a cry, with little prompting. It also provided a name for our sweet kitty, Zilda. Aww. Yeah, I know, that is very sweet. A couple of other notes. Feel free to pick on Victoria. She was overall useless. (laughs) (laughs) Nice. And I'm glad Julie mentioned wondering which members of the crew have had flings. The whole vibe reminds me of a restaurant staff who have all slept together in varying combinations and all hate each other. That is brilliant. (laughs) Accurate. I know. I just kind of imagining like, can we get like a prelude story where it's kind of done in that way? (laughs) Just like one episode before the doctor arrives. Be excellent. The orgy of death. (laughs) The orgy of the robots of death. Mark Russell says the producers should have made D84 accompanying along with the wonderful Leela. A lot of support for D84 here in our mail. That is the second one. Balux blog, if I'm pronouncing that correctly on Instagram, says your discussion was spot on with my take of Robots of Death. I revisit this on DVD at least once a year. And of course, a favorite here, Doctor Who 60s, 70s and 80s says, I heard a cry. It's the Watchers back with another fantastic podcast. I'm so glad you all enjoyed this one so much, and I was very excited at the mention of Graham Williams. His era is just around the corner for you, and I'm very interested in what you think about it. Well, we're about to start hearing about that tonight. Tonight. Yes. Austin Patterson says, Julie and Marco Polo. Wow, this story passed the Bechtel test multiple times. I'm excited to watch Classic Who if this is what we're in for. Julie and the Robots of Death. Two ladies in one story? Someone get the champagne. That is very accurate. Very, very accurate. Ah, good friend, the Whovian gal says, how dare Riley insult the fabulous hats of the robots of death? (laughs) What can I say? I am cruel when it comes to fashion. You bastard. I know. That being said, a great story, though not one of my personal favorites. Okay, that's fine. It's good to get a little bit of differing opinion, but still a lot of respect for it. Interesting. Beardo Beatnik says, an absolute favorite of mine as a kid. Love the cheesy 70s feel that's all over this story. The one Tom Baker story that should have Bowie as the soundtrack. That's, wow, that would be something. That would be awesome. I know, that would be something. And Beardo gives it 9 out of 10 laser drills to the back of the head. (laughs) People are doing very good with the scores on this one. Very good. They are. Keep it up, guys. I know. And to wrap up, David Patty says, great to hear the love for Robots of Death. Always loved this story. Aside from being a tight, well-written story, it's got one of the best bits of counterintuitive castings in Classic Who. Russell Hunter made his name playing underdogs. Most famous one was Lonely, an unsuccessful petty criminal with body odor in the early (laughs) 1970s spy series Callan. Okay, wow. That is interesting. I have to look that up. David goes on to say, not the kind of guy you'd expect to turn up as a Glaswegian Bowie in Who, but it works. The way Hunter plays him, Uvanoff's a bit desperate, good at his job, but hanging on to his position by his fingernails. Good to hear the love for Robots of Death. It's a great, tightly plotted story, and every time I watch it, Russell Hunter as Uvanoff makes me smile. More normally, he played underdogs and scruffy no-hopers. It's always fun watching him looking like a wee Glasgow Bowie and having a blast playing alongside Tom Baker. 10 glam Glaswegians out of 10. And that is our voluminous mail for robots. Please keep it up, everybody. Give us more. I am curious as to whether Uvanov as a apparent Glaswegian supports Rangers (laughs) or Celtic. That is a very good question. David, let us know. Let us know which you think it would be. Yes. And thank you, Riley, for handling the mail. As a reminder to our listeners, we really do love getting your feedback, thoughts, comments, and questions. And we do try to read out as many as possible on the show. So please do get in touch. As always, you can contact us through Facebook, Instagram, and X at at Watchers4D. Or you can email us at Watchers4D at gmail.com. Okay, moving on. And looking behind the scenes on Horror of Fang Rock. And to set the scene, Philip Hinchcliffe has left the show. Rookie producer Graham Williams has taken his place, with his prior experience being in script editing, in which capacity he had most prominently worked on Zed Cars. Oh my goodness. Hey, if you spoke about Rangers and Celtic, me and Anthony had a discovery. Our beloved Zed Cars 
the theme song of Zed Cars is played for the players of Everton Football Club as they walk onto the pitch. So Everton Football Club might become an honorary club of watchers in the fourth dimension. Even though none of us actually support Everton. <laughs> Agreed. Maybe as a whole do, but separately, no. I have nothing to be a fan of, so... Anyway, back to Horror of Fang Rock and Graham Williams. Williams was newly promoted within the BBC and had been developing two other shows, with one of them, which was a hard-hitting police drama titled Hackett, due to enter production. However, the BBC decided to do a little job switch between Williams and Hinchcliffe, and Hinchcliffe redeveloped Hackett into a show called Target. And, obviously, Graham Williams took over Doctor Who. And while script editor Robert Holmes had planned to leave Doctor Who with Hinchcliffe, he was persuaded to stay on for an additional six months to help ease Williams into the role. With that in mind, Holmes began soliciting story ideas for the show's 15th season. One of the first writers he approached was his predecessor as script editor, Terence Dix. Dix was well aware of Holmes's penchant for gothic horror-inspired stories, and so drew on some elements of a rejected vampire serial he had previously pitched in 1974, entitled The Haunting. And as always with Doctor Who, it went through several titles and became The Witch Lords and then The Vampire Mutation. However, the BBC were developing their own version of Dracula to go out in December 1977. And as such, the new head of serials, Graham MacDonald, ordered Graham Williams to abandon the vampire mutation. With this prestigious adaptation of Dracula coming so soon, MacDonald was wary of Doctor Who duplicating and potentially making fun of other shows the BBC was making. So despite the short time frame caused by having to completely recalibrate what he was working on, Dix was willing to work on a new script that would follow the invisible enemy into production. Holmes came up with the idea of a lighthouse with a small number of characters and sets and pointed to Wilfred Wilson Gibson's 1912 poem, Flannan Isle, as an inspiration. The poem was based on a real incident from December 1900 when a supply ship discovered that the three-man lighthouse crew on Island Moor had vanished without a trace. By early March, Dix had prepared a treatment tentatively entitled Rocks of Doom, which he began turning into full scripts and they were retroactively commissioned on March 31st, 1977. Dix originally considered having some of the supporting cast survive the story, but the influence of Flannan Isle prompted the decision to leave only the Doctor and Leela alive. For the villain, Dix drew upon Holmes's past work, The Time Warrior, where the Rutans were mentioned as the Sontarans' enemy in their perpetual war. And during scripting, the title changed to The Monster of Fang Rock, then The Beast of Fang Rock, before settling on Horror of Fang Rock. Assigned as director, we have Patty Russell, who had originally been contracted for The Vampire Mutation. She felt that Horror of Fang Rock was a poor substitute and was particularly unhappy with the lighthouse setting, which meant dealing with a lot of curved sets which would be challenging to film, while the lamp room would require extensive use of CSO due to the transparent glass windows. Joining Paddy Russell, we of course once again have the return of Dudders. I think for something like the 45th time. <sighs> oh, you love him, Julie, come on. We'll get there. <laughs> also we have a new production unit manager so not only do we have a new producer but the person doing the accounting behind the scenes has changed so john nathan turner technically took over from chris doily john during the previous story but this is his formal first full story as production unit manager he had started his career as a floor assistant on the basil brush show before becoming an assistant floor manager on doctor who for season six's the space pirates and he continued to work on and off in that kind of capacity in Doctor Who for a couple of seasons, I think through season eight. He then became a production assistant before stepping up to become production unit manager on a production of the Dickens classic, Nicholas Nickleby. And of course, he will go on to become Doctor Who's producer after Graham Williams. As designer, we have Paul Allen, who is returning to the show for the third and final time. We previously saw him working on Season 6's The Seeds of Death and Season 7's Spearhead from Space. And for our costumes, we have the only contribution of Joyce Hawkins to the show. She also worked on The Brothers, All Creatures Great and Small, the 1982 version of The Hound of the Baskervilles, which starred Tom Baker, and, of course, a production of Vanity Fair. 
BBC does love their Victorian dramas. <laughs> now, I mentioned that Paddy Russell was unhappy with the story. Louise Jameson was also unhappy with the scripts, which she felt required Leela to behave uncharacteristically on several occasions, even screaming. Oh. And she had to fight to ensure that these issues were addressed. That said, the serial would fulfill a promise that Williams had made her when she agreed to return for a second year, doing away with the brown contact lenses. And of course, that becomes a plot point. Rehearsals for this serial also marked a turning point in the relationship between Jameson and Tom Baker. The show's star had been dismissive of his co-star, but by now, Louise had been on the show long enough to where she had the confidence to stand up for herself and her character, causing Tom Baker to apologise to her for his dismissive attitude. Yes. Good for her. Mm-hmm. During production, we mentioned Holmes was already on his way out, and so we start to see the next phase of change. Newcomer Graham Williams persuaded him to stay for an additional six months, but we're done with that. As those six months were coming to an end, Holmes confirmed that he was not going to stay on. As his replacement, Holmes first suggested inviting Dix back to his old job. However, Uncle Terry, as he's known in fandom, <laughs> was not interested in returning to the show full time. Holmes then recommended Anthony Reed, who he had known for several years and who had also previously worked with Graham Williams, and Reed had approached the Doctor Who production office in the past about contributing to the show. And in early May, Reed agreed to handle the final serials of the current season and the entirety of season 16. One thing I think is really important to mention is that as production was ongoing with this serial, something happened in the world that would change the landscape of filmed science fiction forever. Hmm. And that was Star Wars. Star Wars ah. came out... I think it was in May 1977. It might have been a little later, but sometime while the show was between seasons, Star Wars, with its amazing for the time special effects, its epic storyline came out and changed the landscape. So things were radically different when the show's 15th season began on Saturday, September the 3rd with Horror of Fang Rock Part 1. The season would go out at 6.15. Part of Williams coming in was he agreed to dial down the violence, which would keep Mary Whitehouse happy and make sure the show could go out <laughs> earlier again. Uh, question, okay. <laughs> and on the same day as the season premiere, Louise Jameson, in an interview to promote the program's return, revealed that she would be leaving the show at the end of the season. Oh. No! Sorry, Riley. It's we have sad. a full season of her. Yeah, it's, okay. it's good, it's good. Don't be sad that it ended, be happy that it happened. Exactly. That takes us into the episode's short summary, which is with Julie this time. It was a dark and foggy night. When our young lighthouse keeper spotted the thing that he insists is not a shooting star. Enter in the Doctor, who continues to fail navigating the TARDIS, and Leela, who keeps getting dressed up in the worst outfits for fighting. And what starts as an intriguing view on what happens when strange things happen to folks who are so isolated turns into the worst headache when the crew of rich people problems shows up. <laughs> Instead, we get to hear about how one man wants to make all the money from the other man, likely ruining the other man's reputation, while the woman just looks at Leela as if she belongs on the bottom of her shoe. <laughs> <laughs> Let's now just randomly phone in the Rutans because why not? They turn out to be the worst villain as they navigate stairs even worse than the Daleks do. <laughs> in a twist we haven't seen in Doctor Who in a while, or ever, everyone but the Doctor and Leela die. But hey, we now get to see pretty eyes from Louise Jameson, so that's great, right? <laughs> I will accept that trade-off. <laughs> Tell us what you really thought, Julie. <laughs> yeah, let's just get into this. Get into it. That initial effect that we start with in part one, not so hot. Yeah, I mean, they've definitely done a kind of falling spacecraft better <laughs> before. Yes. yes, yes, they have. That said, the effects on this were questionable at times, but let's talk about what they do do well at the BBC, and that is period drama. Mm. From the get-go, the costumes on this were superb. Oh, yes. The sets, despite Paddy Russell not being happy about their size because it's a fucking lighthouse, were also excellent. Yes. I think just the setup and the look of this is really good from the get-go. And they got to use the fog machine again. 
Yes, they did. <laughs> Wheeled it out of retirement. You mean the foam machine? They traded in the foam machine for the oh, fog machine. Oh, sorry. Yes, yes, yes. yes, yes. I apologize. I think they got a great deal on that. But we have seen the fog machine a fair few times. I mean, you yes. think back to like Genesis of the Daleks and Death to the Daleks and whatever else of the Daleks. It was a big <laughs> favorite back then. <laughs> I have a few things. I got a little concerned about the music and continued to feel a little bit concerned about the music. I don't know what it was, but the music seemed a little not as orchestral as I've been feeling from Dutters recently. And nothing really stood out as bad, just nothing stood out as good. You know, it's definitely noticeably toned down from the Hinchcliffe era. That is mm -hmm. so noticeable. And honestly, I don't remember watching through this with a particular ear for the music before when I last did a Doctor Who marathon. So it'll be interesting to see whether or not that continues through the remainder of the season. But I didn't hate the fact that it was toned down. And certainly in parts three and four, the way that the music helps to ramp up the tension, I thought was excellent. Even if the music itself wasn't anything special, it was an element in that. Was there music or was there just a foghorn the entire time? <laughs> <laughs> there was music at times. Okay, I just remember hearing a foghorn. At first, I felt, okay, set in a mood. And then I was feeling, okay, I get it. That's where we are. And then at one point, I was like, all right, just turn that damn thing off. Good <laughs> God. I it's been established. I'll just imagine that it's playing. How about that? You don't have to remind me. Hey, Dick Mills, who did special sounds, really earned his paycheck, this story. Mm -hmm. Really, really did. I also have a question. I feel like the TARDIS is smart enough to not get lost in the damn fog. Yeah. <laughs> Just going to throw that one out there. Thanks, Doctor. Plot contrivance, Julie. Plot contrivance. <laughs> yeah. And also, big shout out to Terry Jones as Ben. Excellent. Like, great job <laughs> by him. Absolutely amazing performance. I wish he was around a little bit longer. No, I Unfortunately don't. not. In all fairness, if you wanted to rate all the side characters at levels of dickishness, Ben surprisingly is at the lower level. <laughs> <laughs> we have Ben for like three minutes, who, by the way, is the actor's name was Ralph Watson. Mm -hmm. And we had previously seen him, I think most notably in season five in The Web of Fear as Captain Knight and as Etis in The Monster of Peladon in season 11. So not his first run, and he's had a lot more screen time before. I feel like he maybe deserved a bit more out of this. And it's funny because I immediately was like, the guy in the mustache is going to be a douche. And he was a douche <laughs> for three minutes, and then he died. And then little did I know, it was going to get worse. <laughs> Just a prelude. Just a prelude. Oh. <laughs> uh, uh. Can we also talk about the Doctor's new hat? I didn't like his new hat. Well, he stole it, first off. Still don't like it. I think he was lonely because everyone else had a hat on, and so he stole a hat so that he wasn't the only one without a hat. It just doesn't go with his costume. I, I, I get that he stole it, but not a fan. While we're talking about new appearances, how about Leela with the new hairstyle, right? That looked pretty good. Mm-hmm. And then I love the fact that she does get changed out into something a bit more practical, right? <laughs> you know how easy that would be to cosplay? Because I probably own everything I need in order to cosplay it. Including the knife. <laughs> I mean, obviously, doesn't every girl have a knife like that? <laughs> Looking forward to seeing that at DragonCon, Julie. <laughs> yes. And there's a lovely little bit, I believe, while we're talking about Leela, which I will go ahead and warn you now, I'm going to be talking a lot about her, not because of just the news that Anthony broke earlier to me and his <laughs> behind the scenes, but also personally, I think that despite the discussion of her not liking how Leela was written, Louise Jameson in this is excellent. How they have her in this is excellent. And I really thought it stood out, except for one slight moment we'll get to later, but in particular, there's a part in part one where you can tell that she is already completely tired of the doctor's shit when he's just <laughs> kind of being mysterious and not being straightforward about where they are or if they're lost and so on and so forth. Just really liking that. I'm pretty sure she just gets tired of everyone's shit in this because everyone is very incompetent. <laughs> but we'll get there. I also just wanted to point out, I love that in this one as well, she just gets undressed in front of who, everyone who's there. Mm -hmm. 
because she'd started to do that in Talons until Lightfoot said, uh, maybe not do that. Poor Vince was just had no idea what to do. He was like, uh, this is makes me un- I'm just going to leave now. That was adorable. I also love the point where the doctor says, don't go hunting whatever's out there. And of course, Leela sneaks out with a knife to go hunt it because Leela. You cannot stop her. She is clearly <laughs> missing murder. In fact, I can't remember how long it's been since she's <laughs> murdered someone, but she has a bloodlust and it needs to be fulfilled. I'm starting to worry about the kind of ladies you like, Riley. <laughs> is there something we need to know about your wife that we're not already aware of? <laughs> not anything that needs to be said on a channel that could be heard by the FBI or CIA. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, okay. There's something fishy going on. <laughs> oh. I know. So I know some of the special effects were not so great. I liked when it was just the green light. That part was really good. But then some of the like electric shock and things. Mm, eh. I like the crackling. Sound. I like the crackling yeah. sound. Again, yeah. yes. Dick Mills was earning his paycheck. But I agree. The electric effects, not great. But the green glow, great. Terrence loved the green. Terrence yes. loves the green. He was very famously <laughs> in uh, an interview and Terrence had a little bit of a speech impediment and he very, very famously in Doctor Who fandom expressed, and all the effects were always green. <laughs> <laughs> it was amazing. Huh. Oh, man. Oh, I did enjoy the green as well, <laughs> Terrence. <laughs> and... <laughs> It was good at the beginning, but then as we get our later reveal oh, of Ripton, yeah. it's so oh, not no. so good. Agreed. I enjoyed the mystery while it lasted. I agree. We'll get there when we get there, because I have opinions. I think overall, the atmosphere in this first episode and the tension is absolutely immense. And there's that constant kind of hints that this creature's outside, but we don't really see it. No one knows what it is. The doctor doesn't know what it is at this point. And it's almost like it's poking and prodding at them. And then it takes Ben's body, Mm. which, of course, causes Vince to freak the fuck out. Right. Mm -hmm. Yep. And then as we get towards the end of the episode, there's a ship coming towards the lighthouse. Ugh. With the fog, with the problems they're having with the horn, it's going to strike and crunch. And that's our cliffhanger. Yeah, I didn't really like it because it didn't look all that great. No, it didn't. Yeah, it didn't. Before we get into part two, I was going to bring up that one moment where I feel like Louise Jameson, who I thought did very well in this, there's one moment in part one where she is in the lighthouse having a conversation with the other crew members, and I'm pretty sure Vince was there. And there's a moment where you can tell that her as Leela completely just slips off and she just sounds so like a naturally conversational English woman in modern time, like herself. And it's fine and good because I think it was trying to reflect a sense of warmness or casualness or something, but it was just so against type of character and just even like the enunciation and how things were said, it was completely off. But I don't know, it didn't bother me too much, but it was very noticeable. I think that's understandable. I mean, Louise Jameson isn't really a savage from... <laughs> true, true. And, the tribe yeah. of the Zeva team. As Ruben would say, it taint natural. <laughs> <laughs> By the way, as we're getting into part two, again, I want to ground this. Star Wars has happened. People oh, have God. seen amazing looking <laughs> model work on the big screen. And here we're left with this crappy looking ship hitting these crappy looking rocks <laughs> and crumpling in not a particularly convincing way. I'm with you. I'm not going to lie, Patty Russell, I'm a little disappointed. Mm. Yeah. I know she can do better. But it's one of those things, like, we don't know what the budget was. I mean, we're still reeling from the budget deficit of talents. Well, (laughs) damn it, Phil. (laughs) Okay. The one, the intro was a bit long. You know me. I tend to notice Mm -hmm. those things, especially for very short episodes. I think part two and part three were very short. Well, I say very shorter than normal. I think there were 23 as opposed to 25. And it was funny at this very point in time, I was like, oh man, I wonder if we'll actually get to see the woman who was yelling on the boat, not knowing how disappointed I was going to be (laughs) once we got introduced to them. Yay, it's the Graham Williams era. We get speaking women in every story now. Oh God, do we have to have this one? (laughs) So can we talk about these folks? We absolutely can. I will say right now that I'm not joking. In my notes, when the ship crashed and I realized we're going to be adding characters to the story, 
I literally wrote, it was so needed to add more characters to the story. Boy, that was a mistake. (laughs) I am, okay. The only person to like from that whole set of people is Harker, right? Yeah. And I was so upset because when you first get introduced to Skinsdale, he's great, amazing, snarky. And I'm just, I love this old man. And then you come to find out that he's a sellout as well. And I'm like, yep. God dick. Mm. But he feels terrible about it. Uh, <laughs> not enough for me. <laughs> just not enough for me. And the secretary lady, I don't know if she's worse or if the other guy is worse. I want to strangle one of them. And I always just go back and forth between the two. And I just, I don't know. Do you know what it feels like? It feels like we are in a Doctor Who episode and then suddenly cast members from a Real Housewives of whatever showed up (laughs) with all the cattiness and backfighting. Do you think that Adelaide and Lord Palmerdale were having an affair? Absolutely. Absolutely. 100%. That's Mm. the only reason she could be so defensive of him, because he's such an utter dick who only cares about himself. He doesn't treat her particularly well. So the only explanation is she has some kind of emotional investment in him. Well, she's also probably getting money from him too, so... Yeah, but I know enough people who fucking hate their bosses and are willing to admit it. Whereas if she's actually having an affair with him, she's getting some of that oxytocin coming out of her experiences, that kind of high. That maybe, maybe. Doesn't she know what a hate fuck is? (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So obviously, you know how I feel about this. It took me out of this story because part one, I think the setup was so well done. The atmosphere is excellent. And you have a very small cast. And you know me, I love small casts. If I can get them, I love them. Then when you get introduced to this new group of people and the bickering and the things that they're worried about that do not matter at all. And again, as I said in my short summary, Rich people problems. Rich people problems don't belong in Doctor Who. They don't. Honestly, you guys know me. I'm fairly moderate in my politics. I would describe myself as being very slightly left of center. But these people make me long for the moment the revolution comes (laughs) and we can line them up. (laughs) Right or left, you're going to have people like that on the right or left. It doesn't matter. But yes, get rid of them because they're the worst. I mean, I'm speaking like (laughs) a communist revolutionary and saying long for the the revolution to come. That one? Yeah. You know, Julie brought up what put these people off on the very wrong foot with me was the lady of the bunch saying that Leela was grotesque, but was also quite striking to me and kind of put me on a bad mood was the doctor throwing that line at Leela of, just as primitive and superstition as your lot. I'm like, damn, doctor, you don't need to be saying that. What the hell? She's been great. Yeah, he's very, very dismissive of her. And I know we're in part two, but in part three, she kind of throws that back at him. Mm -hmm. She says, that's exactly what I thought. But of course, I'm only a savage. Mm -hmm. Right. At which point the doctor responds with, come along, savage. Uh, (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, questionable. Okay, are we done talking about them? Because I'd like to talk about some other things. Sure. Yeah. Okay. I love how entertained Leela is by the foghorn at the beginning. (laughs) And I mentioned it in Robots when she was entertained by the sofa and was jumping on the sofa. I love when she gets introduced to new things and she finds enjoyment in figuring out how those new things work. And I'm glad they kept it going. Yeah. I mean, I think it's part of the charm of her character. Speaking of things about our main characters... One Doctor moment I love is when the Doctor tells them that the lighthouse is under attack and by morning they'll all be dead. And he just says it with this broad smile on his face. (laughs) That is a quintessential Tom Baker moment. And honestly, having met the upper class twits, you're kind of glad. Speaking of Baker as a fourth Doctor and some of his good bits in this one, the part where he leads them on like, so you want to leave? You need to get back over there? It's not going to happen. <laughs> like he just leads them yeah. on into that. That's such a great bit there. You can tell that he sized them up immediately and realize, okay, these people, I will try to save them, but they're not exactly something that's going to really break my heart <laughs> if something happens mm-hmm. bad to them. 
The doctor's kind of, um, he's a bit of a dick, this story, in all honesty. And I'm not quite sure whether that's coming from Terence writing him that way or whether it's just Tom Baker being Tom Baker, because this is really when he starts to be less held back by the production team. It's a good question. It could go either way, I think. It'll be interesting to see what you guys think about how it goes over the next few seasons. He surely is not the Bugs Bunny Looney Tunes fourth doctor in this one at no, all. No, he is not. Okay, Julie, this is the episode where I have a note. I don't remember exactly what the music was, but my note says, Dudders is on fire. The music <laughs> isn't too prevalent, but provides amazing tension. Okay. You can have that opinion. <laughs> You're allowed. <laughs> I want to talk about one thing and a point that I was very sad they didn't really dig into. So Ruben is our superstitious man who has probably been in a lighthouse for too long. But he talked about how it was always said that the Beast of Fang Rock would be back. Okay, great. But then it was never touched upon again. So my question is, have the Rutans come a couple of times before and have they done the same thing? Or is it a completely different story? that they're just able to fall back on because it was something that happened before. That's a very good question. And I'm very sad they didn't lean into that because that would have been a better story than whatever happens next. It did get another mention in part three when Vince is freaking out. He is convinced that the beast mm -hmm. is back. And he mentions that previously several people died and the survivors were completely insane. Yeah, it was 80 years ago. So I'm like, what happened 80 years ago? That's what I want to know. And we never get any more than just they went crazy. And that makes me very sad. I kind of wish we had gotten something more from that, whether it's the Rutans or something else. I don't know. I feel like that was left too open-ended for me. Wow. Is there a big finish? <laughs> Actually, disappointingly, <sighs> I don't think there Ew. is. There should be. <laughs> big finish. Come on. <laughs> You've exploited just about every other <laughs> possible thing in Doctor Who. Why is there not a Beast of Fang Rock audio where, I don't know, the Eighth Doctor and Jackie Tyler, because they fucking love <laughs> pairing Jackie Tyler with people who she has no business being paired with, somehow land on Fang Rock 80 years before this story and experience that. Come on, Big Finish, get to it. I think that the reason why we have that lore and we have the poem is purely trying to set a mood of spookiness, and it wasn't supposed to do anything else other than that. And the fact that you're questioning what else is there to it means that they failed, because if it did provide that level of spookiness, he would be enthralled by that, just as it is, but it didn't. And I'm with you, that element of it fell flat for me. Julie, you mentioned Reuben, and it's Reuben who brings us to the end of the episode. He's down in the boiler room, adding coals. He crosses himself and then walks outside, and we hear his scream from the crew room. Skin Sail says, what the devil was that? And that's our cliffhanger and takes us into part three. And my comment there was, please, not Reuben, because then I'm stuck with all these annoying rich people. Hey, you still have Vince. <laughs> Poor Vince. For a little bit. The fact that they all died before all the rich people died made me very sad. I really love how that first shot is handled in part three, where you've got the open mm -hmm. door with the fog rolling in through the door. It just seems so ominous. I really liked that. Can we talk about Adelaide here a bit? Because... I feel oh like part three is really where we start seeing her constant hysteria. She gets so shrill. She's screaming constantly. Okay. She's just fucking terrible. And there's even a point where Leela gets fed up with her and, and fucking slaps, slaps her. her. Yeah, yeah. So I thought about that. And it's funny because this was brought up as a comment in our mail section. And it's just a wonderful coincidence. Do you think that Adelaide is a slight jab at Victoria? <laughs> It's possible. It's possibly a jab at that. And then I also find it ironic that they had wanted to bring in a Victorian person before mm, this. Right. And it's just kind of a highlight of this is why this is a bad idea. 
Although I think there's a difference between an upper class Victorian lady and a Victorian street urchin, which was the direction Holmes wanted to go in, where you would expect a street urchin to be a bit more weathered and tougher because they've had to survive on the streets. But yeah, Riley, I think you might be onto something. I mean, there won't be that many people at this point who remember Victoria because she'd left the show 10 years previously. Mm -hmm. But I think it's definitely a jab at that type of character. Right. I do have to say one thing, though, about Adelaide is that she's very well written and very well acted because I hate her. Yeah. (laughs) She did her job. Do you think Leela's reaction to her helps that? I mean, there's the point where, and again, skipping ahead to part four, Leela tells Adelaide and Skinsale that the creature is in the lighthouse and Adelaide passes out and Leela just rolls her eyes. (laughs) I loved that, but I think the juxtaposition between tough Leela, who will just take on anything and is like, come on, bring it, versus Adelaide, who's going to pass out in a corner really doesn't make Adelaide look good. No, it doesn't. But it had to be intentional, right? Like, these characters off the boat, the writing is intentional for the audience to completely despise them. And I really wonder if this was written backwards in that we, as far as I can recall, have never had a Doctor Who serial where literally everyone but the Doctor and the companion dies. So I have the suspicion Like I said, this was written backwards. Like they had where they wanted to go. They're like, we haven't done this before. We want to do this. Let's do that. But if we're going to kill all of them, how are we going to do that without upsetting people? Make them all terrible people. With the exception of Vince. I think Vince is just sweet. Vince and Harker. And Ruben isn't terrible. He's just the crotchety old man who's been in a lighthouse for too long. Yeah, that's true. The rich folk are god awful. Right. Yes. Again, when they make someone like me say, I long for the revolution, (laughs) you know they're shitty. (laughs) Oh, boy. And speaking of them, I like, and you're talking about Leela's interactions with them. I think also the rolling of the eyes comes from the fact that, once again, she has lost all of her patience with them. I mean, she's a person from a tribe. She understands the importance of the group being strong. And at that point, she's just like, oh, the hell with these people. And that takes a lot for a character like her to break that way. And also, I do like the fact that with Palmerdale, she just refers to him as the cowardly one. (laughs) What's so interesting about this group, and I think what makes them so hateful, particularly Palmerdale and Skinsale, is they are constantly pursuing their own interests despite the much bigger threat. Palmerdale just wants to get to London so he can make money through insider trading using the information that Skinsale gave him. Skinsale wants to prevent that from happening so he can protect himself and his own honor. So when Palmerdale bribes Vince to send a message, Skinsale destroys the telegraph, which the doctor calls him out on and basically says, yeah, you've probably just made sure that all of us are going to die. I have a slight thing about that, though, because first off, if the doctor really felt like the mainland was actually going to help, he would have telegraphed sooner. And also, the doctor usually likes to try to figure it out himself. He doesn't rely on humans. So why in the world is he so upset that it's gone when I don't feel like he would have even thought to use it? I think he's just trying to make these awful people feel bad about themselves. That would make sense. And that because you're right, if it's not that, then he would have been like, oh, it's a Victorian era telegraph. I'll just fix it. How hard can it be? (laughs) I think he knows that all three of these people are terrible. Yeah. And we were talking about Ruben a little bit, top notch to the actor playing Ruben when he's possessed or controlled by the Rutans or is a Rutan in disguise. I couldn't, oh, it was the, right, the shape-shifting element. That creepy smile he gave, really well done. Really well done. Yeah. He manages to go from gruff Ruben to possessed Ruben. You can see the difference in his performance and it's really good. You know what the dead giveaway was that it wasn't really Ruben? He wasn't going on and all about how much better oil is than electricity. That should have been the dead (laughs) giveaway. I was like, is this guy part of the oil lobby? What is his deal with oil? And of course, we'd seen the actor Colin Douglas before. He was in The Enemy of the World, where he played Donald Bruce. That was a while back, so, you know. All right. 
what else do we have other than the doctor starting to get a little bit techno babbly? Yeah, he gets surprisingly techno babbly, doesn't he, in this story? After avoiding it, because I don't think Tom Baker liked learning the techno babble, he suddenly seems to be doing it. It's strange. And then we have our wrap up of three in which Ruben's body is found outside. And that's when we realize, oh no, we may have not locked the enemy out. We may have locked it in. Bum, bum, bum. Cliffhanger. And by the way, Anthony, do you remember what the doctor said? The type of factor that is being used? How would you say that? Do you remember what he said? Okay. It's the green lizard that can change its color. Oh, chameleon. Okay. Interesting. Because Baker said chameleon. And I thought that was a British thing. No, we definitely say chameleon. So that was a Tom Baker fluff, I think. Okay. I was curious. I didn't want to say it to influence you. I want to hear what you said without having anyone say it first. I also find it interesting that he chose to label lycanthropy as well, because that's based off of werewolves. But okay. Well, yeah, it makes no sense. It's like it's shape-shifting. Well, lycanthropy has nothing to do with shape-shifting other to the shape-shifting into a specific thing. And chameleons mm-hmm. don't shape-shift. They just change color. So it doesn't really work. <laughs> but, you know, we it's let fine. that go. Everything is we, fine. We let that go. We bravely move on to part four because now we get to see what a rootin looks like. And it <sighs> looks like what happens when I take a lot of mucinex. <laughs> 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 I was going to say just wow. a green jellyfish, but yes, that also works as well. I can't, I can't get it's behind terrible. the floating it's jellyfish. Oh, it is so disappointing. When you think about part one, spooky yes. atmosphere, foghorn. Oh, what's doing this? As Anthony said, the sound, the crackling, that's good. It's all there. And then it's just this plop on the staircase. Like, what is this? This is not threatening. And again, this is, I don't know, three months after Star Wars. People's expectations have been raised by this point, and you give oh, us yeah. this. Yeah. Really? It's oh, so yeah. bad. And as yeah. we're getting that, this is when people really start dropping like flies. Oh, yeah. God, yeah. It's very quick. Ruben smiles when he enters the crew room and very quickly kills Adelaide. Thank God. That was, you know, I have to admit, that was kind of disturbing to me. Like, Julia's right. They were just like dropping people left and right. And I would think that it'd be, I don't know, maybe I'm old fashioned. There'd be a little more sensitivity into just killing a woman so blatantly in cold blood that wasn't like, she was annoying. Yeah, but she wasn't completely like evil or bent on destruction. It kind of hit me in a weird way not very good i also find it interesting that there was a lot of talk about it being too violent and now we just killed everyone i know yeah but none of them really in ways that could be copied by kids and i think that's the big thing except they would think oh hey electrocution you can do electrocution you know i looked this up i think there was a rash i think there was a news story there was a rash of young english kids in the late 70s on the beaches of like brighton trying to kill other kids with jellyfishes it was horrible <laughs> wait when did palmerdale die did he die in part he was in three? part three when he was on the top yeah. of the near the the lamp room and it just kind of trying scaled. to yeah it did like those it reminded me of this god this is how old i am there was a toy a very stupid toy that was basically like a sticky gooey kind of extruded thing that looked like an octopus that you could sling at a wall and would kind of yes. wobble oh, it well yeah. down. Yeah. Well, the glop of goop that is a rootin kind of did the opposite and kind of went up there with its tentacles and kind of grabbed them and pulled them yep, down. That was it. That and was it. And I swear, I thought they were going to throw me around on this one because at the beginning when I saw how awful everyone was, I picked out Palmerdale as being the most awful. And I said, this is the guy that's probably going to last to the very, very end, isn't he? But I realized that's more of a new who thing for something like that to happen. And I was very happy to see him killed so quickly because I thought that would be the end of it. But no, there's more killing to come. In New Who, he would make it to the end and actually survive. Right. And get a rant from David Tennant about mm-hmm. why is it you? Why is it always the worst who make it? All right. Right. Anyway. <laughs> I was a little disappointed because we identified that they were doing this body shifting thing that Palmerson or Palmerdale, whatever his name is, would come back <laughs> and 
it would go from imitating Ruben to imitating this other guy and kind of go between forms. But mm. no, that is not what we got. We got to get the green jellyfish that could not go upstairs. It just sat there. <laughs> All they needed was just a big hose, just a, like a water hose, just spray it down every time as it tried to come up. <sighs> I think part of the issue I have with part four is this goes from very much a very small scale threat. First three parts, it feels like there are six lives at stake. The crew of the lighthouse and these three or four people from outside. Part four, it suddenly goes oh, to a yeah. planet-wide mm-hmm. threat. We're going to use your planet as a staging post for our invasion of the Sontarans, and if you don't like it, we're going to turn your planet to sludge. That came out of nowhere. Yeah. And I don't think was necessary. I think just the Doctor and Leela's lives being at threat, trapped at the top of the lighthouse, having to find a way past the Rutan, that's all this needed. It didn't need the mothership showing up. It didn't need the global threat. It didn't need the Rutans in it. (laughs) (laughs) Seriously, it could have been anything else on that. You're right. I was about to disagree with you, Anthony, but then you're right. The battle of survival at the top of the lighthouse could have by itself very well could have been thrilling, intense, and engaging. Because my first thought was to disagree with you and say, well, we have to have some other threat or some other conflict to deal with because everyone else is dead. There's nothing else to fight for. But I'm like, oh, wait, no, you're right. There is something to fight for. Leela and the doctor need to survive. (laughs) And the mothership exists for one reason and one reason alone. And that's so that they can blow it up, have Leela stare at it and change her eye color. That's literally the only reason it's part of this story. Anyway, I'm jumping. Gunpowder. Fine. Cool. Whatever. Cool. Whatever yeah. you'd expect that. The diamonds. So this, I think, is where Skinsale kind of shows his colors. So they need to focus the light <laughs> to turn it into a laser. Fine. Whatever. A sci-fi bullshit. I don't buy it. I don't think you could really turn a lighthouse yeah, you... into a laser with a diamond. Okay. Yeah. Regardless, Palmerdale always carries diamonds. So the Doctor and Skinsale go find his diamonds the Doctor finds the one he needs and throws the rest on the floor just as the Rutan is coming up the stairs. Skinsale, being the moron that he is, <laughs> decides he's going to stop to pick them up because greed is more important than his life. Right. All right, Skinsale. I actually sympathized with him through a lot of this. That point, he really proved to me that he was an idiot and <laughs> kind of deserved to die. Just fucking run. He could have survived. He could have survived. Right. And the thing that was shocking to me was then later when the doctor comes back up with the diamond to explain to Leela that he has not made it. He said he died with honor. What? <laughs> no. Died with honor trying to loot someone's diamonds is dying with honor? What the hell? Is that some sort of like dark joke to the doctor? Like to himself? Like, I'm going to tell her that he died with honor? Jeez. I genuinely think it was because it, he's not capable of honor. Yeah, it's impossible. I mean. <laughs> so, yeah, I think that had to be some sarcasm from the doctor. All right. What I do love is Leela oh. being so ruthless and going down oh. to the root. Oh, that scene was beautiful. She acted that very well. I loved it. That was amazing. That is probably my favorite scene throughout the entire serial. And I will tell you now, I would never play Monopoly against Leela. She would be ruthless. (laughs) She would. And if she ever played competitive online video games, she would be the biggest trash talker. And I love her. All right. As... They have 117 seconds to get out of that lighthouse. I love that one moment of comedy, and it's one of the few moments of comedy we get in this entire story, where the Doctor's out of the lighthouse, Leela is doing what Leela does. I think she's getting the knife. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And the Doctor's kind of yelling, get out, get out. And he eventually decides he's going to jump back in (laughs) to get her. And as he jumps in, she runs out and they cross paths. (laughs) And that was one of the few brilliant moments of comedy that we actually get. And I kind of loved it. Yeah, it was a nice bit of lightheartedness that I wished was more in this one. I prefer the Bugs Bunny fourth Doctor than the one we got here, especially when we're dealing with these type of a-holes. I prefer where he doesn't take them seriously and isn't pissed off about it. He just, he does what he did earlier about the whole joke about, so you want to get back, right? Well, blah, 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 blah. And then, well, that's not possible. Something like that, instead of just being snipey the entire time. 
I'll tell you what this is. This is the fourth Doctor we saw in Planet of Evil, Pyramids of Mars, and the Seeds of Doom. Yeah, it changes. You're right. It does flip sometimes. Yeah, this is a different version of the portrayal that we have seen before, but it's so inconsistent with what we've seen in the last three or four stories, and it's very jarring for us. And then he does a monologue as... Yes, he's reciting Flannan Isle, which this is based on, so that's pretty meta. Yeah. All right, that's the end of our story, and we end with Louise Jameson no longer having to wear her contact lenses, so yay, Yay. good for her. I don't think there's anything worthy of the camp count here. No. I didn't notice, and I'll explain later. We don't have any quarries. We don't have any- No jelly babies. And Philip Hinchcliffe is gone, so we're not counting speaking (laughs) women anymore. Bye, Phil. So, Riley, you're kicking it off with scoring this this time around. I like the setting. I know that the foghorn was meant to provide atmosphere. It became annoying real quick. Lilo was absolutely wonderful on this. Truly the standout in the serial. Tom Baker, once again, gives an excellent performance. But as we mentioned before, I prefer him being a little bit more silly than so snippy. This must be, and we discussed this as well, the only Under Siege type serial that we've covered where the script wanted you to hate the supporting characters, with possibly the exception of Vince. R.I.P. Vince. I appreciate the novelty of that. I really do. But the problem with that is I don't want to spend time with these people for four episodes. Maybe <laughs> kill them off in the episode they arrive and then another ship comes up with people that I would care about. I don't know. Change it up. But it's just not people that I want to revisit, not people I want to hang out with for four episodes. And of course, the monster design was disappointing to say the least. But a lot of criticisms, but I'll take the Leela and the Doctor in a creepy setting any day of the week. So I give this seven primitive bipeds of no value out of 10. I'll go next. And Riley, I think you and I are more or less on the same page. There are lots of things I like about this story. It really ramps up the tension. I think the sets really help with that. That real feeling of claustrophobia you get from those small rooms and the winding staircases. There's nowhere to really run in this. You're trapped and the doctor has trapped the monster in with you. So I love that. And to your point, I think the Doctor and Leela are well played in this by Tom Baker and Louise Jameson, even if it's not necessarily the version of the fourth Doctor that we really like. I think actually the supporting cast play their characters kind of perfectly. I don't think it's any of their fault that we're just meant to hate them. I love the grumpiness of Ruben. I kind of love the way he plays Root and Ruben. But my God, Adelaide... Her shrieking is probably the most annoying thing I've seen in Doctor (laughs) Who in a while. I really love to hate Palmerdale, actually. He's awful, and I really enjoy having him be that terrible. And yes, Riley, I agree, the Rutan is terribly realised. It doesn't look good. Doctor Who's done better. We know Doctor Who can do better. That's disappointing, even if they are still pinching their pennies after talents. So I think I'm... Right on there with you. This does have enough pros to bump it up a bit. So I'm going to go with seven grumpy old light keeps out of ten. And Julie, wrap it up. That's nice of you guys to be so kind. I didn't really enjoy this serial. I'm not going to lie. I was very disappointed of the shift that happened after episode one. If we had stayed closer to that feeling in episode one and kept it there, I would have been so much happier. I think adding those additional characters was a misstep on their part. I, again, atmosphere, great. The characters that they got, terrible. The special effects were not super great. The Rutan was not well realized. I particularly did not care for the music. Yes, I agree in certain parts it did work, but it seemed to go a backward step for debtors in my personal opinion. So I'm going to go with 5.5 hysterical women out of 10. (laughs) And that gives us a story average of 6.5, which is higher than we had for the Mask of Mandragora last season. So, you know, we'll take a small win there, maybe. (laughs) Okay, yeah. I don't know. We'll see how this season compares overall to season 14. But that brings us to the end of the episode. We'll be back next time round to face an invisible enemy in... Um, the invisible enemy. (laughs) But in the meantime, as always, thank you so very much for listening. And of course, have a good one.
You have been listening to Watchers in the Fourth Dimension with Riley Shrek, Julie Filipek, and myself, Anthony Williams. This episode, The Real Housewives of Wherever, was recorded on Wednesday the 27th of December 2023. If this is your first time listening into the show, all of our previous episodes are available wherever you like to get your podcasts. You can interact with us on Facebook, Instagram, and X at at Watchers4D, and you can also email us at Watchers4D at gmail.com. If you're enjoying the show, please do subscribe and consider leaving us a review or rating on your favorite podcasting app. All of those things really do help the show. And always remember, if you have a green alien snotball chasing after you, leave the diamonds behind. You can't do anything with them if you're dead.